Well, hey, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. And if you're keeping track, there's 50 chapters in Genesis. And we're trying to hit all the highlights between now and Christmas. So here we go, right? Uh, so Genesis 22 is where we are. Uh, we have been in this series now. This is our fall preaching series called A Family for the World. And we are looking at the great call of Abraham and how that turned into uh, an even larger picture of family coming through the book of Genesis, setting up really the stage for the rest of the biblical storyline. And so uh, I hope you've enjoyed it so far. And here we go today into Genesis 22. But before we dig into that, I would love to pray for us and ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful that we have your words, Lord, that you have spoken, that you've given us. So, Lord, we don't have to meander through this world and this life without knowledge of truth. Lord, you've given us truth. And we know that this truth is what we stand on. This truth is reliable because you are reliable and you are trustworthy. You have proven that to us by sending Jesus to die for us. So, Father God, we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your word. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts through it now by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in your name, Christ, we pray. Amen. So like I said, we've been following the story of this man named Abraham. And we have seen this great promise that God has made to him to bless him and to make a great family out of his initial family, which will turn into a nation and that nation will turn into nations, we saw, plural, and those nations will be a blessing to the world. Now, we're still kind of scratching the surface as to exactly what that blessing to the world will be, but today is going to bring even more clarity into what is going on here and how this is setting the stage for the rest of the biblical story to unfold. So, by the time we get to Genesis 22, what we have seen as we've been tracking through this the last few weeks is a lot has happened in Abraham's life, right? A lot has gone on in Abraham's life, not the least of which has been the birth of his son, Isaac. We saw that last week. After years and years of waiting, that great anticipation, that excitement of having your first child for Abraham and Sarah when he was 100 and she was 90, right? A little unconventional, but that showed the power of God. It showed the truthfulness of his promise. It showed that he would keep that promise and that only he could, um, could provide this miraculous birth. Only he could do this. But after years and years of waiting, though, you can only imagine, as we saw last week, the doubt that would fill their hearts and all the emotions that would come with trying to have a baby and not being able to. The ups and downs of that emotional roller coaster. But God promised this birth. He made it happen. It was a gift from him. Isaac, their son, was born. And he was born with such a significant purpose attached to the meaning of his life. He was born to be the next offspring in this great line that God promised to become a blessing to the world. So great joy. You can only imagine, right? And if you are a parent and you've held 
a newborn baby before, you know how special that moment is when you hold that child for the first time. Or if you have adopted a child and you hold that child or you, you bring that child into your family and the first time you lay, you lay eyes on them, whatever the case may be, when you see your son or your daughter for the first time, there is unexplicable, just it's hard to even put into words the joy that fills your heart. So Abraham and Sarah, after all these decades, decades of waiting for that moment, you can only imagine how happy they really are, how joyful they are that they have this child. And that brings us to chapter 22 in this story. So what I want us to do is walk through the narrative, walk through this story in the text, and then we'll talk about some points at the end. So Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I, of which I shall tell you. The baby who brought so much joy to his mom and dad's heart, the baby that was promised by God himself to come into this world with such a significant purpose attached to his life. And then we read this. This is one of the most shocking statements that you will ever read in the entire Bible. What is going on here and what does this mean? Because here's the thing. God is asking Abraham to offer his only son, the son he loves, as a sacrifice but we know God is infinitely good. God is infinitely good. He is infinitely wise. He has to be or he would not be God. God is those things and yet he asked Abraham to do this. We know God would never ask someone to do something that is morally wrong. So why then is God asking Abraham to kill his son? What? is he telling Abraham to do here? Well, notice that he's asking Abraham to offer his son as an offering, as a sacrifice. Now, the Christian author and, and pastor Timothy Keller, uh, he explains this. He gives one of the best explanations I have ever heard about what is happening in that moment in his book uh, called Counterfeit Gods. I highly recommend it. And this is really helpful. And so I want to read an excerpt uh, from his book explaining this because I really do think that's just the best way for me to let you know and kind of us talk about this, if you will, uh, to understand this. So here, here's what he says. He says, ancient cultures were not as individualistic as ours. So in ancient times, it was all about your family, Right. He says, all the hopes and dreams of a man and his family rested in the firstborn son. The Bible repeatedly states that because of the Israelites' sinfulness, 
the lives of their firstborn are automatically forfeit, though they might be redeemed through regular sacrifice or service or a ransom payment. I know a lot of this sounds foreign to our minds because in our modern day world, this sounds absurd. But in those ancient cultures, the firstborn child, the firstborn son in particular, carried the weight of the family on his shoulders. And so what Keller's saying is the weight of the sin of the family is on the firstborn son. In fact, listen to this. This was written much later after Abraham, but this scripture in Exodus 13 solidifies the importance of the firstborn son in the ancient family, particularly among the Israelites. Listen to this. Exodus 13 verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me, or in other words, set apart, offer to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So God is saying the firstborn belongs to me. There is this theme of firstborn sons are owning the weight of the family. Remember the Passover in Exodus, right? We'll get there next year when we get into Exodus. But we, you remember, right, uh, when, when the Lord visited Egypt, and what did he take? He took the firstborn son's life, right? The, the life of the firstborn is what was taken unless you had the blood of the lamb painted on your doorpost. And so you were passed over, hence the name Passover. Anyways, Keller continues to say, he continues to say, notice God was not asking Abraham to walk over into Isaac's tent and just murder him. He asked him to make him a burnt offering. He was calling in Abraham's debt. His son was going to die for the sins of the family. So Abraham was not saying, this is crazy. This is murder, but I'm going to do it anyway. Instead, he was saying, I know God is both holy and gracious. I don't know how he's going to be both, but I know he will. I hope that makes sense. And I think Keller's right. I think that what you see here is a God who is absolutely holy and hates sin. Sin is not okay with God. But what you also see is a God who is gracious. Abraham believes God is both holy and hates sin and will not let it slide, cannot sweep it under the rug. It must be paid for. It must be defeated. Yet, Abraham also believes that God is gracious to those he loves. And so he moves forward when God calls him to sacrifice his son for the weight of the sin of his family. And there was a lot of sin in that family. He says, I don't really understand how this is going to work out, but I'm going to move forward because look what he does in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Man, think about that. As confusing as this is to us, even in that culture, this is still something Abraham didn't want to do. He didn't want, right? Who would want to do this? As much as Abraham probably did not want to do this, he gets up first thing in the morning and obeyed. He moves forward in the midst of even the confusion in his probably in his own mind. He moves forward with obedience. Look at verse 4. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So he says, we'll come back. We're going to come back to you. Maybe he really believes that somehow, that he and Isaac are going to return together. And just so you know, the place they were going, Moriah, is just outside of what would be present-day Jerusalem. Hang on to that thought for later. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but... Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, I don't know, and we really don't know for sure if Abraham really believed that God would provide a lamb or if he was just trying to maybe assure Isaac that everything was going to be okay so that this didn't get out of control emotionally until the last moment. But what we do know is Abraham is believing God will provide a substitute in place of Isaac in some way. He says, we're going to come back together. The Lord will provide a lamb. But even with this great faith, you can still imagine the sick feeling in Abraham's stomach that probably grew as they got closer to this destination, as they are hiking up the mountain, as they are walking up the hill, Isaac carrying the wood that he would be sacrificed on, on his own back. Abraham probably just felt the most emotional weight you would ever feel in your life. What is going to happen? Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So we see here in this amazing story that God intended all along to provide a substitute for that sacrifice. That was his intention. He never, he was, this was never, Abraham was never actually going to follow through with this. God provided, right? In the very first part, it says God tested Abraham. He's testing his faith to see 
what extent he will actually go. But Abraham's faith strengthened and demonstrated by actually going through this. It demonstrated how strong his faith really was. And so God, in response, and by the way, when it says the angel of the Lord, many scholars think that that's referring to the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself speaking to Abraham. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. At first glance, I think this might be the kind of story that leaves us with more questions than answers. And that's completely understandable. This is very foreign to our minds in our current modern-day cultural context. It's hard for us to even imagine this scene and this scenario even playing out. But I want us to look at two primary questions that may arise from this story. And I also want us to see that there are answers to these questions. First question I think we need to ask when we read this story is, why must my faith be tested? Why must my faith be tested? You see, all throughout Scripture, we see our God testing the faith of His people. We see it. There's multiple examples throughout the Bible of God testing his people to see, is your faith genuine? Is it real? And in this particular episode with Abraham, we see the reason for this testing in verse 12. It's easy to kind of read over this and miss it. But the reason for this testing is given to us in verse 12. If you look there, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For now I know that you fear God. God wanted Abraham to prove the genuineness of his faith and to truly trust in him no matter what. You see, to fear God essentially means to recognize in your daily life that God is God and you are not. If you really want to boil it down, that's what it means to fear God. God, I believe you are God, and you have the right and the responsibility to tell me what to do. And I'm okay with that, because I recognize my place underneath you, far underneath you. You are my creator, you are my authority, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. So when you, in your infinite wisdom and your infinite power, and your infinite goodness, when you tell me to do something, you know what? I'm going to fear you. I'm going to have this respectful reverence and awe of who you are, and I'm going to say, you know what? I think God knows what's best. I'm going to submit to what he's doing here. That's what it means to fear God, which, you know what that does? When we have that kind of humble attitude before the Lord, it leads us to worship him with reverence and awe, appreciating both his holiness and his grace. 
Fearing God does not mean that you are afraid of Him. It means you run to Him. It means you trust Him as a loving Father to provide. But how does that love for God, how does that grow? How does that fear of God, that love of God, that reverence, that awe, how does it grow inside of us? How do we learn to fear the Lord? Well, one of the primary ways is, guess what? Through the testing of our faith. I mean, I think we would all agree that the trials and the circumstances and the difficulties that enter into our lives, you really have two options, don't you? You can either, one, complain about them and just not learn anything and just be so glad when they're over, or, number two, you can pretty much accept the fact that they're happening. That doesn't mean you have to like it, but you can accept the reality of it and truly seek the Lord in the matter to carry you through it. Not for him necessarily to remove it, but to, for him to carry you through it. Because at the end of that, what is the end there? You look back at your life and you realize, look how much the Lord has taught me in this. Look at how he has changed me through this. The Lord tests our faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 is a very famous verse from the Bible that speaks to this. James says, Count it all joy. Count what joy? The things that make you happy in life? The things that are easy in life? James says, count everything. Everything the Lord brings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that word means perseverance. The testing of your faith is going to make you stronger. It's going to bring a sense of perseverance in your heart. And he says, verse 4, and let steadfastness or this perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in other words, God allows our faith to be tested through various circumstances in our lives, not because he is cruel and this is some kind of unusual punishment. That is not it. It is because he is developing resolve and perseverance and strength of faith in your heart that will stand the test of time. Because it's not our power. It's not dependent on how strong our faith is. He is the one molding us and shaping us like a potter does with clay. God is shaping your faith. He is building resolve, strength, Perseverance in your heart if you humbly, like Abraham, accept the circumstance and persevere with obedience. Not only that, not just so that our faith becomes stronger, but because God tests us so that we can look more like Jesus, so that we can be a better witness in this world for him. 1 Peter chapter 4 Verses 12 and 13 says, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? Don't, don't say, what in the world is this? He says, it's not strange. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
The purpose of our trials is not just to strengthen our faith, but so that our faith, when it is strengthened, will shine like a diamond in the rough. It will shine to a dark world and show those around us, not that we have some kind of inner miraculous strength and that we have great willpower and, hey, look how strong I am. That's not what this is about. This is about the joy of Christ. This is about the strength and power of our Lord magnified through us in the darkness of our lives. Peter also said in 1 Peter 1 that when our faith is tested, it proves that it's real. When it's put in the fire, it's proven to be genuine. So for Abraham, he passed this test, right? His faith proved genuine, and undoubtedly, his faith grew in greater resolve and strength and depth. So know this, God is in no way cruel if he allows your faith to be tested. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. It's his love. It's his love for you that tests you that allows you to go through those circumstances of testing so that he can form you and shape you into who he needs you to be. That's love. So that we will be more like him. So that we will find ultimate joy and peace, not in the things of this world, but in him alone. And our lives will love and worship him supremely. So that we will know we truly fear him. If we obey, right? if we obey in the trial. And that brings us to the next question. To what extent am I willing to obey? I mean, I, I can't help but think of that question when I read, right, when we read this story. I mean, we see the extent Abraham was willing to go. But if we ask ourselves, to what extent am I willing to obey? Christian theologian Alan Ross says, to what extent will we obey when the Lord commands his people to make some costly sacrifice, to do some task that seems unreasonable or impossible, how willing to obey are we? You would think that's an easy answer. Well, I'll do whatever God asks, right? Whatever the Lord asks of me, I'll do it. Man, we say things like that, but do we really mean that? I mean, do we really believe that? Because I'm not sure. But here's the kind of obedience God's looking for. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says it this way. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's interesting words to use, isn't it? Because this whole story that we're looking at with Abraham in Genesis 22, what is it about? It's about faith. It's about obedience. It's about sacrifice. And how the Lord demands sacrifice for sin. But here Paul is saying that we need to be a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, he says, which is your spiritual worship. Which means living a life. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means living a life that continually puts God's will ahead of your own. This has to do with something we could call sacrificial obedience versus 
convenient obedience. I want to talk about that. To what extent are you willing to obey the Lord? Let's talk about those two things. Sacrificial obedience versus convenient obedience. You see, for Abraham, he demonstrated sacrificial obedience. Given the context we already discussed, he was willing to sacrifice his own son for the Lord. Think about that. The son that God had promised, the son they waited 25 plus years for, the son who brought them so much joy, Isaac was their treasured possession. Dare we say there was nothing more in this world or on this earth that they loved more than Isaac. Yet Abraham worshipped God more than Isaac. Or we should say Abraham worshipped God and not Isaac. He worshipped God alone. Man, how easy is it sometimes to worship the gift God gives us instead of God himself? Even something as special and as, as important as a child. The weight and the pressure we may put on our children to bring us joy. We hope we can shape them into what we want them to be so that we feel like we're successful parents. The weight and the pressure we put on romantic relationships with a spouse. For them to be something that they really can't be for us, a savior of sorts. The weight and the pressure we put on our career to provide money for us to buy the things that we think we need to really be okay. Abraham didn't have this problem. Abraham recognized his place. He feared the Lord. And so he kept God above all those other good and precious things, even his own son. He was willing to obey and sacrifice the gift so that he could truly love the giver. And I just wonder, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to sacrifice whatever gift and put it in its proper place and truly worship not that gift, but the giver of all good gifts? And I'm afraid for many of us, we don't want to sacrificially obey if it means saying no to something or if it means putting something in its proper alignment and and on the proper place in the great priority list of life. I don't know if we are fully ready to make that sacrifice. Because I think what a lot of us prefer is obedience to the Lord when it is convenient, when it is okay for us to make that move in life, when it's okay for us to do whatever it may be. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about, convenient obedience. Because when we tell our kids to pick up their toys, it's so funny how it's never a convenient time for them. Oh, oh, well, we, we're watching this or we're doing that, right? I mean, that, it, it's never a convenient time for them to clean up their room or pick up their toys. And then, not only that, normally what happens is even in their inconvenienced uh, state, <laughs> they start bargaining with us. Well, well make, him, make my brother pick up that, right? I didn't bring that out or I'll just pick up the fire truck, not the fire truck and the thousand Legos that are on the floor, Right? There's really good bargaining tactics here. I think my kids are going to be very successful business people and uh, making all kinds of great deals, right? (laughs) 
But I think we do the same thing with the Lord. I think we should do the same thing with God. Uh, well, Lord, I don't know if I should give that much in the offering. I mean, ooh, you know, I don't know if I should sacrifice my time to serve in the nursery at church. I don't know if I should do a trunk for trunk or treat, right? That's not why I'm saying it, I promise. I promise. <laughs> That's not the point of the sermon, okay? But if you do feel guilty, I understand. Um, <clears throat> but here's what we do. Seriously, here's what we do. We say, okay, Lord, when the timing works out for me, Right When the timing works out for me, if I have you know, something left over, or as long as I don't have to forfeit one of my great comforts in life, as long as I don't have to forfeit this pleasure that I'm accustomed to, man, what is that? It's coming to the Lord with terms and conditions. I mean, what a miserable way to live if you think about it. We, we come here and we proclaim God's praises and we sing his songs and we worship him and we hear from his word and we act like we just love him with our whole heart and, oh yeah, I love the Lord. We love you, God. We will sacrifice ourselves for you. But, hang on a second, let me get this out of my back pocket. Oh yeah, here's my terms and conditions. though. Here's all the things that need to happen for me to really worship you, Lord. Here's all the things that you need to provide for me so that in my convenience... I'll look like I'm really sacrificial and I'm going all out in my faith for you. That's not sacrificial obedience. Man, are we willing to risk it all? Are we willing to risk it all for the love of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of all humanity? Who created us and knitted us in our mother's womb, who knew your name before the foundations of the earth, who loves you and provides for you, are we willing to risk it all for the sake of his gospel message in this earth? Are we willing to make true sacrifices in our lives for Jesus and the building of his kingdom? Abraham didn't hold anything back. He was willing to obey the Lord at any cost and give up the greatest gift God had ever given him, his greatest treasure, his only son. And how can we live like Abraham? How can we live like that? With that kind of faith? Is it even possible? Is it really in today's world? With that kind of willingness to obey? Without limitations? Without terms and conditions? Without boundaries? How can we do that? I think the answer is that we must look to someone greater than Abraham we must look to someone greater than Isaac, a greater sacrifice as our hope and our strength. Because let me tell you something. Many years later, after Abraham would place this wood on Isaac's back and walk up this mountain to sacrifice him outside of what would become Jerusalem, Many years later, another man would carry wood on his back and walk up a mount called Calvary just outside of Jerusalem. And just as God provided a ram to be the substitute for Isaac to die in his place, this time our Father God would provide a lamb, the lamb of God to be the substitute to die in our place. John 1.29 tells us that the Lamb of God, 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus Christ is the true and greater sacrifice that we've been needing. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the true and better Isaac that gives us the power to live with that kind of faith. Because we're asking ourselves, to what extent am I willing to obey the Lord? Let us look no other to the example of Jesus Christ who provided the answer for us. Look what he did. He was willing. To what extent was he willing to go? He was willing to go the full, the full place. Willing to obey fully. Philippians 2 tells us that he was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The most wicked, terrible form of torture in the ancient world. Which is exactly why we can trust him and live sacrificially before him. That's the key. How do I live sacrificially? How do I truly let go of the things of this world that my heart is attached to, that I sometimes put above God? How do I live sacrificially? The answer is found in the power of looking to the one who died for you sacrificially. It's only through the gospel and his grace that allows us to live like this. Romans 8.32, listen to this. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God is telling you, I've given you my son. I have given you everything, my most treasured possession. And so how in the world could you live in this life knowing that you've been given everything, thinking and doubting that if you live sacrificially, I will not provide. How can we live like that? It's because God has already given us the greatest sacrifice that could ever be given in the history of mankind. The life of his son, his only son, whom he loved. It's only because of that that we can live in sacrificial obedience, trusting that he will never let us down. He's proven to us that he is trustworthy and that he will provide. He's carried us this far. He's carried you this far. Look what he's already done in your life. He's given you salvation, the greatest gift. He's given you whatever other gifts he's given you. Look what he's done. He's already proven through, he's already proven through Jesus that he is trustworthy. He has the power to save so why would he stop there? Why hold anything back? And now do you see? Now do you see the faith Abraham had? He didn't have to hold anything back because he trusted that the Lord loved him and would provide. And he did. So why us? Why us hold anything back? God is a good steward of our lives. Man, this is liberating, right? I just God is a good steward. I'm not a good steward sometimes. You're not a good steward of the gifts God's given us, but he always is. And it's liberating to know that we can live freely without terms and conditions, without keeping a list of things and demands that God must meet for us. It's liberating, it's freeing. 
to know that you can live sacrificially like that for the sake of others, for the sake of salvation to others, for the sake of the glory of Christ and the gospel. It's powerful. Sacrifice. What gift of God are you willing to sacrifice? And maybe a better way to say it is, what gift of God are, do you love more than God himself? What good thing have you put in place of God? To what extent are you willing to obey? Are you willing to go all the way and go all in? Because Christ Jesus went all in for you. He carried that cross up that mount. And he died in your place for your sin. It's beautiful. We talked about how, you know, Keller said, how, how could God, or how could Abraham understand God's grace and his holiness? The cross, we see it now better than Abraham could have even seen it then. Because only on the cross do you see God's holiness, his hatred towards sin, but also his grace, his, his redemption of your soul. Jesus took our sin on himself. And in, in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. It's by grace through faith in what he's done that we are saved. It's when we repent of worshiping the gifts of God, we turn away from that and we truly turn our hearts to him alone, the giver of those gifts, who is worthy of our worship. It's only when we do that that true salvation comes. If you have not done that today, I want to ask you to please find me after the service and I would love to, to get together with you and talk about what accepting that gift of salvation really looks like, about worshiping the giver. Maybe you do have a relationship with the Lord today and you're wondering, you know, man, I, I do feel like there are gifts from God that are good gifts in my life, but I am worshiping more than God himself. Maybe you're here today and you realize that resonates with me because the truth is I don't think I'm living sacrificially. I think I obey the Lord when it's convenient for me. Wherever the case, whatever the case is and wherever you lie on that spectrum, I just want to encourage you as we pray here in just a second, confess that to the Lord. He knows already. He knows your heart. So verbally or just quietly in your own mind, confess that to the Lord. And if you'd like to talk with me more about that, I'd love to, to meet with you. But let, let's do that now. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord to truly help us understand his great sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, so that we can live the same way. Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross, giving up everything, not, not because it was convenient, Lord. It was so inconvenient for you to give up the riches of heaven and come to earth to live for us and die for us. But Jesus, you did just that. You were obedient. You were obedient, Lord, to the will of God and your Father, even to the point of death. Jesus, would you help us to live sacrificially for your grace? Lord, would you forgive us for where we fall short? Lord, would you forgive us for where we're stingy with our time, our service, our resources? our money. Lord, would you help us to give all of those things, our relationships, whatever it may be, 
Lord, help us to give sacrificially so that we can be liberated from this convenient obedience problem where we hand you terms and conditions of how we think our lives should go. Lord, let us live with no boundaries, with your grace, with your love overflowing in our hearts. Would you help us to follow your example of obedience to your word? Thank you, Jesus, for your ultimate sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.